the competitive 40k network presents art of war art of war strategy and tactics discussions with the best players on the planet now your host nick nanavani Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Art of War podcast. I am your host, Nick Nanavati, and I am joined all the way from the land down under by a fellow Art of War coaching teammate, Matt Morisoli. Matt, how are you doing? Uh, I'm doing really well, Nick. I'm finally back to my normal sleep schedule from uh, from Europe. I had my first good night's sleep last night, so I am um, I'm ready to go. That's right. Matt was competing at the World Team Championships for Team Australia, the winning team last year. So we're actually here to unpack that a bit. I'm super excited. In part one of this episode, we're going to get to know Matt. We're going to learn about him, his play style, his philosophy about 40K, and the WTC, how Australia has dominated, you know, going first place, fourth place, first place, and third place in the last three showings. It's a tremendous performance year after year after year and what that looks like and how they get, get it done and then uh, what's, what's coming for the future. He also had an amazing performance this year on Team Australia with all Chaos Knights of all armies. Most players aren't even looking at Chaos Knights, not even considering Chaos Knight. What even is a Chaos Knight? Matt's going to break it down, and that's going to be part two of our conversation, which is going to be for our patrons. You can subscribe on AOW40K.com. That's our Patreon. It's five bucks a month. You get access to all the part twos of all 205 episodes of this show, plus our Discord server, where you can talk to guys like Matt anytime you want by just tagging them. So this chaos necklace, that's going to be the focus of part two for our patrons. Matt, how are you doing, buddy? Uh, I'm really well, Nick. It's it's good to be on, on the Art of War podcast with you again. It feels like it's been a little while. You know, it's uh, it's good to be back. It has been. It has been. The last time you were on, I don't even remember. It was last year sometime, but I'm glad to have you on in 10th edition. You seem to be kicking butt still. You know, nothing's changed. Yeah, well, look, uh, yeah, it, it seems to be that way, especially, look, WTC at the start of an edition is a bit crazy. Um, obviously, you've been to a few of these. You know what it's like. If there's a, a big, big event like this at the start of any edition, there's a lot of prep that goes into it. But the side effect of that is you get to play a bunch of games with a bunch of really good players, and you sort of you know, get to roll that form that, you know, I seem to have at the end of ninth over to 10th and, um, you yeah, lo- know, loving it. Like, you know, despite, like, besides from Eldar in the singles meta, loving pretty much everything about the game at the moment. It's pretty great. That's awesome. So you come from the land down under. Talk to me about what that is like as a scene, how you prepare for, like, the WTC as an event in Australia. Yeah, it's um, it's probably a little bit different to uh, a lot of the European countries. Well, to be fair, it's probably uh, relatively similar to... Uh, the U.S. preparation, given both countries are like geographically pretty large. Um, this year, we had a mix of two players from Victoria, uh, two from New South Wales, uh, and then four from Queensland. Um, so they're all separated out quite a bit. You know, from where I live in in Melbourne, it's about an hour on the plane to Sydney, about two and a bit to Brisbane. So, you know, if you're in Europe, two hours on a plane gets you four countries sometimes. You know, it, uh, it gets you geographically like quite a lot, uh, you know, a, a larger area. So, um, you know, given we're at the start of an edition, we sort of didn't do a whole lot of prep up until, you know, right before 10th Ed came out. Uh, there sort of wasn't a lot of point in getting together and doing stuff at the end of 9th because the, the game is so different. During um, this off time, though, were you still chatting and interacting as a team a lot? Were you guys like friends outside of this or did it all just turn on once 10th edition happened? No, no. So, so we had the team selected from 
uh, from uh, right, right around LVO. Actually, I think when, when I was flying over to LVO at the start of the year, I'm pretty sure we picked the last player on my flight back. I remember being in a, a, a Discord uh, like text chat with um, with the other guys on the plane back, uh, working out who our eighth pick was going to be. So we've been picked for a while and we've been chatting for a while. But look, it's really hard to sort of dig your teeth in until you have all the rules. And even once the rule book came out, right, until we had all the indexes and, and points and everything, it's kind of pretty hard to to do a whole lot. So as soon as the rule book came out, you know, we had group discord sessions and we were breaking down little intricacies in the rules. We were doing write-ups on, you know, things like, you know, like, like the changes in the charge phase, for example, we had a bunch of, um, you know, dissections done there. We have a, a team discord where it's sort of broken out into to factions and then to rules and then to things like rules we wanted to clarify and rules questions to ask the WTC judge team and stuff like that. And that sort of populated straight away. As soon as the, you know, the rule book came out, you know, we, we started filling that with with questions, with little tricks, you know, just things to familiarise yourself with. Um, but really it wasn't until, like, we had everything that we sort of kicked into, you know, full, full steam ahead, let's go. Um, it, it's obviously very challenging when you're getting a whole new rule set, you know, essentially a month, well, there was five weeks before... Um, for the WTC. Yeah, that's chaotic. And I was just on the podcast last week with um, Pumbaa all the way from Poland, the captain of Poland. And I was asking him what their process looked like for unpacking such a, like an enormous amount of information, having to optimize it. And what does that look like? What does that look like for Team Australia? Like once you had the rules and once everything was like full gear? Yeah, so pretty much we, uh, since we didn't like assign factions to people, but we sort of, you know, I'm a, Drakari and a demon player, so I started with those books and I sort of wrote up, you know, a couple of paragraphs on the books and what you, which units were good and what combos were good. And everyone kind of took their own factions, uh, including our coaches, and we did that. So we ended up having this, like, huge information dump. Uh, and then, obviously, you know, a few of the lists that were sort of S-tier became clear. You know, the Eldar and the GSC became clear that they were books we were going to take and we sort of assigned players to those straight away so those players could really work on the lists and refine the lists. But we weren't going to move um, Chris off the Eldar, Alex off the GSC from sort of day one. Uh, but then for the rest of the list, it was just like assigning them to players who would play those sorts of things, playing a heap of practice games. And we actually... Uh, arranged uh, our sort of prep plans in a way that we all travelled and we all met up as a team, almost all of us, not not everyone every time, but almost every single person in person three times before we left. So given we're in three states, it's kind of uh, kind of difficult to do. But we went up to um, the Gold Coast first. I think we had seven of the eight players and four of the five coaches um, at Liam's parents' place on the Gold Coast. And we had... Um, you know, games all weekend. We essentially got in on Friday and we played games Friday, Saturday, Sunday and flew home on Sunday night and went back to work. Um, we had a team event in New South Wales that we went to um, and we went up again, went up a day early and we played a bunch of games at uh, one of our coaches owns a, a restaurant with a function room up there. So we you know, took over his function room and we were playing games in the, the function room of one of our coaches' restaurants. We just you know, got everyone in the same room and, you know, checked that what the guys were testing in one state and what the guys were testing in another state sort of made sure that everyone was on the right path, um, you know, made, you know, made refinements from that. And we sort of, we played our team's list at that team tournament and made a few final changes there. Um, and then again, right before we left in, in Melbourne, everyone came and stayed down with me. Everyone thinks that their house is big until they have 13 nerds staying in their house. And you realize all of a sudden you don't have a whole lot of room for living in the house while there's 13 people there. And we had four, yeah. Four, four tables set up in here. Um, there's still actually an air mattress on on the floor next to me that I haven't 
packed away yet. Um, someone slept in my hobby room, uh, but uh, played a bunch of games there as well. So like we we just we dissected the armies, we we, we divvied them up to people, and we met up and played games as a group um, in person as often as we possibly could. Uh, it's pretty hard when everyone lives so far away, um, but I think we you know, we did pretty well getting everyone together three times in sort of a, a six week period to do that. That's really impressive and really exciting, especially like Australia is an enormous country and you guys face those challenges. America struggles the same, you know, like our players are just geographically far apart outside of little pockets, so it's hard to get us all together. It takes an enormous amount of dedication and like commitment for your team and everyone they sacrifice and like you said, your people sleep in your hobby room. It's craziness. So um, like when you're selecting players who can like make that time kind of time commitment and then also the time and effort commitment to go all the way over to Europe and play for Warhammer World Championships. That's such an ask from Australia. Is it are you compromising player skill with ability to make the commitment or are the people that are good enough just making the commitment themselves? Yeah, so, so this year is probably different, right, because given we won in 2022 uh, i think that the sort of like the the wtc stocks high kind of thing happened where everyone wanted to be involved because australia won last year uh and that sort of meant that we had our pick from you know anyone who was available we, we kind of we, we didn't really have to compromise player skill for availability now that being said you know we definitely had a stronger team last year um yeah, we had players who couldn't come two years in a row, players with work commitments, players with family commitments. Like One of our players from 2022 just had a baby, uh, and it's a pretty tough ask to, A, spend all of the prep time um, you know, and travel time within Australia while their partner's at home with a, you know, a new baby, and then also to go to Europe um, with a, a child under one year old. So it's, it's pretty tough to you know, get players like that who have life going on in the background to... To commit, um, and you know, obviously, um, you know, he he wasn't able to make it this year. We also have Simon, who's got four children at home, who just can't leave uh, the country every year. Which again is fair enough. We've got people like Eric who have work commitments, just sort of can't take the time off, you know, every year as well. Um, so like, there's definitely compromise, and like, it's not it's not like the team was drastically worse than it was last year. You know, I, I actually think the strength was comparable. But what you kind of lose is the I'll say, like, the, the battle-hardened status of people who have been to WTC a few times and have experience playing in high-pressure, high-stress environments. You know, we've got to take people who are who are pretty fresh. Um, and it's not really, you know, it's not really anyone's fault, right? It's not no one's fault they haven't played WTC before because our new players are still, you know, really strong players in their own right. But when you yeah, haven't so been to that sort of thing, right? More stronger, experienced players, right, for the future. Yeah, well, I remember my first event, I played the the event in, in Serbia um, that you played for Team England on when you guys won. And I think my, my round one, like I, I, I think in, in Serbia, I was in probably some of my best 40K form ever. I was so, so honed and like so good on the list that I was playing. And I played my first game against um, the Italian player, uh, the older player for Italy. Um, and I just forget to bring reserves in. I just totally spaced. I, you know, I have to go get a, a judge to come over and tell my opponent that he actually does have to let me bring my reserves in because I just forgot about them. Like, it, it, it's a high-pressure, high-stress environment. You, you know, you forget things. You make mistakes when it's your first time there. You know, there's pressure, especially when we won last year. These people who have never played this event before have that pressure of, like, supporting your country. Uh, you know, it's, it's like, it, 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 it's difficult, right? So you kind of lose that, um, you know, that, that, that level of experience, that sort of, 
you know, that, that, that level of, um, I, I guess, calm under pressure that players who have been a few times bring. So that was probably the biggest thing that I thought we lost this year. Yeah, yeah definitely. Right. Nice. So you, would you say your process for Team Australia in the future is going to be similar to what it looked like this year, or is it going to reselect itself? Um, no, I, I think, look, I, I think it'd be pretty similar. Like, I, th- there's always going to be a few players who are just so good that if they put their hand up to go, they will get picked. Um, you know, this year, we essentially kept four players on from last year. We said, given that we won, it was pretty much a, well, this team won. Anyone who wants to go back can go back because the team won. Um, that's kind of a pretty fair uh, way of doing things in in my opinion, obviously with, you know, with some common sense exceptions, because there can definitely be problem players sometimes, even if you win. Um, but we said anyone who won, you know, in the winning team in 2022 can come back. And there were four of us who wanted to go back and then, took applications, worked with people, you know, obviously those who are, there are always going to be better applications than others. And the players who were stronger out of the pool, we sort of spoke to individually and kept our eye on over, you know, a couple of events. And, you know, again, people kind of know each other because Australia is very big, but, you know, within that sort of big place, there are a lot of, I guess, smaller, you know, communities, given we're so far away from each other. So it's pretty easy to have people keep an eye on, you know, four or five or six or however many it might be players who you sort of think are, are close to being on that level of of good and ready. Um, and you know, we just kept discussing it with each other, with the four players who we picked from last year's team and kind of worked out who our best options were. And look, like I said before, it might not have been as good of a team as it was last year, but it definitely wasn't, you know, oh, uh, no like a yeah, exactly. Yeah, it wasn't like yeah, black and white different. It's, it's like, a congratulatory it type yeah. of situation over here. Don't get me wrong. I actually yeah. want to ask you about your team composition. Um, one thing that I found so fascinating, and I always do with Australia, is you guys just come up with what I perceive and what you know, mostly Western teams perceive as like just wild and off the wall list teams. Like Team America didn't bring any night armies. You brought two knights, both Chaos and Imperial. We every team brought custodians. You guys just left them at home. What is the? What did you end up for an overall team composition? Yeah. So um, the the knights the knights question is interesting. Um, I we have a we have sort of a, a I guess a, a dedicated knights player. Like Will is a Will is just a knights player. It's what he does. He, to be fair, he played custodes and singles and did really well. So we sort of were thinking a little bit. Oh, maybe we should have taken custodes after um, after day three of singles wrapped up. Um, but Will himself is is a Knights player. It made a lot of sense for him to play Knights. Knights were in a really good spot when you know we first started looking at them. Um, we probably look. One of the things I think we do quite well is that we analyze things like map packs and pairings really well. Like I, I firmly believe that Jeremy and I on pairings this year were better than anyone else we paired into. Our data was always, you know. When our data was good, I'll say we got, you know, really good, favourable pairings every single round. Um, that's probably a skill that a lot of teams maybe don't appreciate enough. I know that... It separates yeah. the strongest teams from the teams that come close but not quite. Well, well, Typhus said on StatCheck that there's nothing you can do with pairings. It's all just the grid, and I think he's completely wrong. I think there's plenty of things you can do with pairings. Um, <laughs> I, I think there's a lot there's of... There's so much to yeah. it. I can't believe he's... Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I can't either. Um, I, gave, I gave him a bit of shit for that over in Europe, don't worry. <laughs> um, but yeah, like I think we do that really well. And then obviously Knights, like Imperial Knights offers you a, a second towering list because everyone has a Wraith Knight, right? Like it's everyone has a Wraith Knight. So Imperial Knights offers you a second towering list. There's a lot of things you can do with table choice with that. It is obviously a liability. Like if you don't use that asset well, it becomes a liability because people can take the... Um, the light tables or take everything like, you know, except the super ruin, like the, the two touching ruin tables. Um, and that creates a bit of a, a liability, but you know, we sort of thought we were good enough to, to use that to our advantage. And there were definitely games where the Imperial Knights just sort of stood on the board and their opponents couldn't hide. And you say, well, good luck. I'm going to shoot you. Um, and that felt pretty good. The, um, the custodes question is probably a little bit different. I think the, the real answer to custodes is that we thought everyone would have it. And we thought that everyone's counters to custodes would be really obvious. And definitely in sort of the first, I think the first four, maybe even five rounds, everyone had custodes and it was the first or second put up every single time. And we had good pins built into custodes. We just had plans for that, you know, that matchup. Admittedly, we were horrified of John's list. Um, John's custode list was just really good and we were pretty scared. We spent a lot of time prepping for that and, yeah, unfortunately didn't even get to play it. Um, but we sort of just sort of we thought the custode uh, put up was going to be really telegraphed and really obvious and um, would kind of give us a bit of a legs up because we would know what other teams were going to do with that list. And then we also saw teams like Poland and England brought the guard that was designed to play against custodes, brought other lists that were sort of designed to play into custodes. Um, and we kind of dodged that a little bit. A lot of the tech that was built to play into custodes isn't really very good into the Knights. We sort of thought going a little bit off meta was a good play. Like, uh, I think um, one of the other ideas that we we kind of have as a team is that if your list is different enough to, you know, someone else's list and teams want to practice into you, they're practicing just into you. They're not practicing into the field. If we bring a generic custodes list, people can put that list on the table and spend their effort playing against that army, and that gives them reps into... 80% of the field, but almost no one has Chaos Knights. So who's going to put Chaos Knights on the table and play against it on the off chance they play me or Arn from Germany? Like, they're not, they're not going to do it. Um, and, look, maybe that's a bit of a, you know, a bit too mind-gamey and a little bit too sort of arrogant to think people won't test that. But at the same time, you know, it's sort of worked in the past. We've taken lists that are just a little bit different from the rest I of the field. I think it's even a safe yeah. bet, right? Like, there's only it's there's only so many hours between once tenth edition is launched and WTC, and there's even fewer hours between lists going live and WTC. You're not yep. going to test the the what if one matchup. You're probably not going to hit. Yeah, uh, definitely. And look, that's um, we, we've done that in the past, and it's always sort of worked out. I think, like you know, last few years we've had armies that are just a little bit different. Um, to the rest of the field, and people don't quite understand them as well as they would understand. Oh, yeah, cool. That's you know, forty demo charge acolytes and eighty air fights and a squad of aberrants. Yep, cool. Same as every other GSC list. I've played this three times in practice. Good to go. Um, but there's some value in being a little bit different, I think. So obviously, the the ramifications to pretend to being different are potentially that you're just wrong or that, you know, it doesn't work out. You're taking subpar stuff because it's different for sake of different overall, your team composition, just looking at it was GSC, Tyranids, Eldar, Chaos Marines, Thousand Suns, Necrons, and then Chaos Knights, Imperial Knights. And a lot of those are pretty normal, stable armies and with their own personal player flair on them. But then some of them are pretty wild, like the Horde Tyranids. How did that fare for you? Um, yeah, so the Horde Nids did pretty well. I think the problem we had with that was 
because that list was so different, you know, like I said before, a lot of teams hadn't practiced into it and didn't really know what it did. But I also think that we had the inverse issue with that one where our Tyranny player didn't have enough chance to play as many games as he probably needed to, because he probably needed to play games into everything to get his data right. So, you know, the data disparity was kind of split there, because we had games where he went up, like he got the GSC, and that was actually designed, it was designed to play um, into GSC and a few other things, and it's really, really good into GSC. Uh, and, you know, GSC just can't kill it fast enough, and it holds primary over the, the GSC, and it does some cool things. Um, and, like, he got that, and it was great, and he, you know, but then he... Like, he got, I think he got the Orcs one around, and that was great as well. But then there were just things, games that, like, he got killed too fast and he didn't have the experience to understand he was going to get killed too fast. Like, that army just dies. You know, it's just, it's just gaunts. So they just die. Yeah, um, so what it does, yeah. yeah, but it takes the board, right? It, it, it stands on the board. It move blocks, you know. If you go first to that army and you advance gargoyles and shoot them, then move, shoot, move, and you're standing in front of your opponent's entire army and they can't walk through you, it's actually a problem. Um, oh, especially yeah. with, with the way cards work now, right? Like, if you can block them from getting to the center for homers, block them getting to corners for signal, block them just from getting places to do secondaries, um, it's actually a massive problem. Uh, but at the same time, I, I think we sort of uh, suffered from that data disparity this year where, you know, Brody did really well on that army because he's not really a tyranny player. He picked that up for this event. And the matchups he had experience that he did really well in, but also I think we had, a you know, a bit of the... The, the bad data on our end too, because he just didn't have time to play against everything. Right. Yeah. Makes perfect sense. So no custodies and you brought uh, a different style tunings, but it seemed to work for you. Um, and then when I look at your thousand sons army, triple needle with vortex beast rubrics, uh, terminators, but no Magnus. What, what was the thought process behind that? Magnus isn't like every single thousand sons list I've ever seen. And uh, this one just looks, you know, like it's missing him. Yeah, well, Eldar blow Magnus up, right? That's the problem. Um, Fair enough. Yeah, for for playing the carrying them in the Eldar, like definitely. Yeah, Eldar just shoot Magnus and he's dead. But don't Eldar just shoot everything and they're dead? I I feel like most teams like accepted. Let's just sacrifice somebody to the Eldar gods. Were you trying to get wins off of Eldar? That that T Sun list beats Eldar. I'm playing almost exactly that T Sun list at a a singles event in two weeks, Um, and I think I'll beat Eldar with it. Um, T-Sun's tech, oh my god That We're not going to get too deep into the details We just had Vic VJ on with his T-Sun's But man, this is a totally different And wild T-Sun's list, triple needles this Vortex beast and tension What is the idea behind that beating Eldar? Okay, so double Doombolt does a bunch of damage To a Wraith Knight, that's sort of the first thing um, Obviously if you can see it But if you can't see it, it's also not overwatching you And you're sort of killing it The Terminators do uh, tremendous damage to the Wraith Knight. Um, with Devastating Wounds and Psychic Bolters, they do a lot of damage with Royal Hits and Wounds. Um, you know, they essentially can't get overwatched because you can drop, um, you know, 24.1 inches away, and if the Wraith Knight Phantasm's back, you can extend range on the, the weapons, so you can still shoot. Um, you essentially are playing the... Um, I either double Doombolt you if I can. If I can't double Doombolt you, I'm stripping your armor save and I'm putting a bunch of wounds on you or I'm just doing devastating wounds with the bolters. The Mutaliths are really quite sufficient. They're, um, they're super tough. They also don't just die to a Wraith Knight as well with the Philopane and the Involm. Um, looks sort of sometimes they do, but they don't just like 100% on math just die to a Wraith Knight the way that like an Armager does, for example. Um, the whole not having Magnus thing kind of just means that you have more stuff um, in the army that doesn't just get 
blacked from, you know, anywhere on the board at any point in time. Um, I don't know, we, we played it a bunch of times. Like jo- Josh, again, Josh also didn't play Thousand Suns before this event. He picked it up for this, you know, for WTC. And he was taking games off of Chris in practice. You know, Chris is one of the best LDAR players in the world, I think. Chris is absolutely insane with that army. Um, you it's know, interesting about Chris's yeah. Elder Armies. It's also not your normal Elder Army. It's you know, it has the Cat Lady, it has Triple Ravagers. Like, yeah. you, you can't even guide just do Eldar stereotypically. Why was were the Eldar data sheets not good enough here? Look, they, they are. Ravagers are just really good. Like, <laughs> they, they, don't you think Ravagers are really good, Nick? I think Ravagers are great. Yeah, you're not wrong. Like, <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I, I think Ravagers are really, like, really good. They're um, they're decent in the mirror. Look. I, we thought more teams were going to go Knights, you know, like, like we did. Um, so the Ravagers help into Knights. Um, we thought that we were – we didn't think we were being too too special with double Knights, but apparently we were. Um, what we just thought that, a, a, like the Ravagers are pretty good shooting in the mirror, and, B, they're really good into Knights. So that's kind of where we went that way. It never felt like it was bad in the mirror. Chris won the mirror twice, I think. Um, so that's pretty good. That could just uh, be Chris as well. It could just be Chris. Chris is phenomenal. Uh, There's another case of that on your team as well. I mean, Liam, Liam Hackett. Can we talk about this, man? Like, how is he just putting out these 20s with Necrons? He has two units, two units of 20 Warriors and two Katan. That's it. That's all he's got. What look, look that, this army is incredible. Um, and again, I, I don't know how no one else took it. What, t- talk to me, Nick. Uh, before we do this, why does no one else have a Ghost Ark? Okay. I don't. I, so, like, I'm not a Necron guy. Let me be clear. But here's here's how my external view on Necrons looks at, and why Team America didn't bring Necrons. Basically, you you choose between Warriors and Lich Guard as like a decision point. If you go Lich Guard, you take the things surrounding Lich Guard. You pick Warriors. Then yeah, you go with the Ghost Stark and all that stuff. Now, as to why Necron players go Lich Guard or Warriors, I really don't know. I feel like Warriors all day, every day. You know, that's my personal take, and I would do it very similar to how Liam has. But even still, don't. There, there are things that can kill this Necron unit. Isn't that, like, the premise of why it's not that great? Like, if someone what? shows up with, like, 2x10 Gene Steeler Acolyte squads and just goes no. to town, it's going away, you know? It, do- it doesn't. Do the math. It actually doesn't. Oh, don't make me do the math, Pat. I will Nick, trust you. So, 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 Nick, here's the thing, right? The, the, the 10 Acolytes can kill the Warrior Blob. There is a chance that it does. Obviously, a lot of this comes down to how many 4-ups you roll on the Crypto Thralls. Um, but... It doesn't always kill the warrior blob, and if you drop the acolyte blob on the warriors, like if you drop two, like you're suggesting, firstly, all the models that the first one kills are within six inches from the second unit, so the second unit's not shooting anything because you reanimate back outside of range of the second. So you do stringy necron warrior tricks to not be like a brick where they can just shoot you endlessly. Well, well, you obviously have to have a brain to play this. I mean, you have well, to like I mean, this is yeah, not like yeah, surface. No, of course, no, no, it's it's not. No, you're right. But like, obviously, what you have to do is you have to pull out of range of the second unit if that happens. So, like, essentially. Yeah. yeah. So, like, you do that, you pop the reanimate strat uh, to bring guys back, you bring them back, you know, out of range of the second unit, then the second unit can't throw demo charges at you and you just kill both those units. That's kind of the, like, the crux of that. There are things that can kill it. Um, Death Watch Desolators can kill it. Um, I think, yeah, I think the Tau, the Polish Tau list with all of the cyclics can, you know, blow itself up to kill... Here's where I the really get stuck with it, though. Like, forget yeah. that it can just be killed by very obscure things within the game. We mm-hmm. were of the opinion, I say we, I wasn't involved with the team, but I feel like I was. Um, but we were of the opinion that, you know, every team will have 
Gene Slayer cult, and we were thinking Thousand Suns can do it too, and certain uh, Chaos Marines and Tab builds can do it. So too many of their armies can just do it, was our thought. The other thing here is like, how does it score points? Like, obviously, it's going to stay on objectives for days for primary. That's not my question. But it has, Liam's list specifically has five units that like do things. Like, how do they score points? Well, the Transcendent Catan teleports around and does actions. Like, it goes into the center of the board. Like, it's got, uh, like, a lone op to, you know, stand in the sea of warriors in the middle of the board and do homers in the middle of the board. Um, so you're like, taking fixed with it a lot? Uh, look, I, I don't actually know how often Liam did that. Uh, I don't. Uh, sure, I, it just I, Liam, Liam, put, yeah, Liam put scores in, and I said okay, and I got Liam the matchups he wanted, and he came back with more points than he put in the spreadsheet. That's normally what happened. Yeah, um, I get it. That's... And yeah, a lot of that's player skill, right? But I, I don't think it has an issue with that at all. Like I, I was finding that you know it's it's got enough stuff to to play the mission, to score points, to be places. Like sure, there are some secondaries that it doesn't like, but that army also loves CP. That army doesn't hate cycling a couple of cards for command points during the game when it wants to spend sometimes two CP in your opponent's turn to do two activations of reanimate. Um, yeah. So, like, I, I, I really don't think it struggles with that at all. Like, from from my experience, I, I was yeah. seeing him score almost every card. How he was getting such high scores. I could see him doing, like, draw fest, small wins into everybody, but, like, the 20s he was bringing home, that shocked me. So here's the thing, and like this, this is probably you know it, it might sound disrespectful. I don't mean it's come up that way, but like people just don't understand it. They don't understand what it does, and they make one mistake. Like they overwatch um, a warrior by mistake, and then you say, "Okay, cool, I'm going to ground for a six plus invol. I auto kill a warrior, and then I get to reanimate and get close to you, and then all of a sudden I'm charging." Like Liam wrapped a decanon in one of the Eldar games, and he wrapped it in such a way that it could never fall back. And then he had this unit of warriors that was sitting on three objectives that, like, the D-cannon just couldn't fall back because it didn't have a big enough move to clear the you know, the number of warriors standing around the D-cannon. And it just stands That's some Liam magic coupled that in. That is. Like, that's, yeah, right. But, but the list enables that, though, right? The list is built to enable tricks like that, where you can wrap things, where you can stand in the right place, where you can... You know, like, it, it, it's not so simple. You can do the math on what kills 20 warriors, and you might think your army can do it. But can your army do it, you know, with... Uh, like like Sarah's giving you the the armor of contempt. Can your army do that when you're you're getting three activations of reanimate over the course of the turn and a ghost arc? Like, can your army do it with all of these things happening? Can your army do it if Liam just pulls you out of line of sight after you kill six warriors right. and then so reanimates later on? Right? But, yeah, the army just enables that, and that's the big difference between this and Lich Guard because the warriors are you know actually good OC um, while the Lich Guard are OC one. Um, and the Lich Guard only have 10 models, so you can't string out and do tricks with the Lich Guard the way you can do them with the Warriors. Nice. So talk to me about your Chaos Knights. I know we touted a little bit about Double Knights as a theme that your team was bringing, but Matt, you, in my opinion, are a demon player. We're demon buddies together. We have a group chat, and then, you know, I've seen you play Jukari, but I guess you're a Chaos aficionado of all flavors. What? Why not demons? Why didn't you run Fate Weaver is my first question, and then why, what led you to Chaos Knights of all things? So, firstly... Jeremy took the demons in our CSM list. He didn't need them. He did, I will not hear that. You could have taken them as a main faction. I, I, I could have. I, I had the option to. Um, I was losing to everything with demons. That was my big issue. I just wasn't winning games. So I was testing um, Bellacore, Fate Weaver, Double Lord of Change. I think it was. Might have been Single Lord of Change. A couple of Lab Crushing units with the Skull Masters. Um, and I was just losing to everything. I tried the Monster Mash. I was still losing to everything. Um 
the thing is, right, the the fly changes have really hurt the big monsters a lot. Um, the army kind of became a drop Bellacor in, you know, bring Shalaxi in, go charge things, hope you don't die. And unfortunately, the big problem with that is it's fine into the, the worst players, but the better your opponent, the better they get at screening, the harder it is for you to deliver Shalaxi and Bellacor and a Bloodthirst or whatever it might be into stuff that you want to kill. And then you end up standing there, you know, kind of like, you know, clenching through your opponent's shooting phase because you're getting lined up by an entire army. You're getting screened. You're not really scoring cards because you can't really dedicate a 400-point monster to going and doing investigate signal in a corner. Um, I, I I wasn't a big fan of where demons were at. Uh, I really liked the Blood Crusher list. I played it a bit. You know, I had a, a like so I, I beat Eldar with it twice, and I was thinking, oh, this is pretty good, but it just sort of didn't really materialize into something that was consistent, something that I wanted to play at that level and. I took a bit of a risk in 2022 with the Drakari. You know, we took a meta call that we thought was good and it turned out to be pretty, pretty bad. And the Knights ended up just feeling like a safer bet. Um, we played lots of games, you know, would have been clo- close to a hundred games total before WTC, like playing three or four nights a week, three or four games every day, just trying to get ready. Uh, and the, the Chaos Knights just felt like a safer call. Like the, the Demon List felt too one dimensional. It felt like it didn't really beat anything hard and the cast knights felt like they could push and you know and get good wins into things that's so fascinating you know we see demons on the top tables at least they flirt with the top tables over here in america we see them definitely as a popular team tournament choice because monster mash just jams stats at you i personally play my monster mash like a control army and it, it's awesome for me but I, I understand that's definitely not for everybody i'm so curious what you brought you to these chaos knights and how to unpack it why don't you just walk us through what the list you actually took to wtc was yeah, so I took all small knights, and there's sort of two ways you can do this. You can do 13 small knights where they're all good, or you can do 14 small knights where most of them are, are bad. And I went for the 13. Um, the only other list that was like kind of the same was Arns from Germany, and he went the the 14 with um, some of the worst knights. So we can sort of we can unpack that in part two if you can. I'll, I'll sort of talk you through the key differences there because I tried both. But I've got um I got two stalkers. I got one with the Aura of Terror. Uh, they're both Melter and Claw. I've got six brigands with um, the uh, the cannon and the, um, the the Melter with the Havoc Indirect. And then I've got five Carnivores with the double weapon and the Indirect. So 13 knights, all the brigands hit on twos and shooting, all the Carnivores hit on twos in melee. They've all got Havoc Launcher Indirect. And then we've just got the two Stalkers to be characters um, because... Well, you need one, um, and Aura of Terror is pretty good, and the points just sort of work out. You either get an Executioner or a Second Stalker, and the Stalker's just kind of better than the Executioner is. They're a very simple army, not a whole lot to it. It's just 13 Knights, it's um, 104 OC, uh, and yeah, they're pretty good nice, on these tables, simple, I guess. brutal, lethal. Stands on objectives all day. I love it. We're yeah. going to unpack his on part two, everybody. We're going to figure out exactly how Matt Morisoli went undefeated with Chaos Knights. We're going to unpack the pairings, what he played against, how he played it, and what exactly his army does and why you should be afraid of it, or maybe why you should play it, all in part two. You can subscribe on AOW40K.com. That is our Patreon. It would mean the world to me if you subscribe. This is our 205th episode, and I am only able to keep producing the show because of all the love and support you all give us. So thank you so much, and we will see you later. Matt, thank you so much for coming on. We'll see you in part two. All right, Matt. Like what you just listened to? Check out Art of War Down Under and Art of War Unbroken on the competitive 40K network. 
the art of war 40k.com <laughs>